the violence from outside and the violence in the structure, the violence in the system comes into you and you vent it on those who are close to you. Welcome to Surviving Society with Chantel Lewis and Tiso Regis. Executively produced by Georgia Fori Addo. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please support us via Patreon. If not, you can always support us by sharing, subscribing, rating and reviewing. Welcome to another episode of Surviving Society. We are really excited today to be joined by Professor Paul Gilroy, winner of the Holberg Prize 2019 and the founding director of the Sarah Parker Raymond Centre at University College London. Tisa and I are quite nervous. He's got a lot of books, man. <laughs> And probably the most sighted person on this podcast, as many of you know. Thank you so much for joining us, Paul. I'm very happy to take part this afternoon. Thank you very, very much indeed for inviting me. Paul, speak to this current moment and where, if you feel, the Black Atlantic fits today in 2020. That's a hard question to start with. I mean, I suppose I I don't know if it fits anymore. I, I think the Black Atlantic kind of died a while ago. I think... How can I put it? I began to struggle with the idea of the Black Atlantic when I wasn't. I began to doubt whether we could make a map of the Black Atlantic that included Guantanamo Bay. I remember, you know, searching around and reading every book that came out of Guantanamo Bay. Some of the, you know, the the, the chaplain there wrote a book, James Yee. Um, some of the guards have written books. The Australian guy who was banged up there wrote a book. Mazen Beg wrote a book. There's books in Swedish, in French. There's loads of books. And I became very interested in, in the history of the exceptional space, the prison camp that wasn't a prison camp, the American machine that wasn't in America, the history of that. One of my students years ago um, had written a, a PhD on the, um, the town of Guantanamo, and um, so I, I began to wonder whether the Black Atlantic, as the discussion was unfolding, could accommodate, I suppose we could say, the effects of the war on terror in the Caribbean. After all, Cuba is part of the Caribbean. And and I and then I began to think about the political life of the movements that had emerged from African-American freedom struggles and, and been so influential and, and potent, being taken up by people elsewhere you know, Black Panthers in Sweden, Black Panthers in Greece. Do you know what I mean? And I just I just wasn't really sure any longer whether whether the things that were in my mind were well, I mean they're important historically. Whether or not we can keep those categories going into the different sets of circumstances in which we find ourselves now as a kind of um planetary phenomenon, I'd say. I mean, one of the most remarkable things about the Black Lives Matter uprising, the demand for justice, is the way it's been so resonant in so many different places. There's been such a big mobilization all all over the world, actually, all over the world. And so I'm I'm thinking about maybe we need we need to think more about the planetary. We need to be less, as it were, provincial and more planetary in thinking about those relations, those movements, that critique on its mm-hmm. travels as, as a global phenomenon. And I, and I think probably the dimensions, not just of the COVID pandemic, which also contributes to this impulse to 
think in a planetary way, um, but also the impending climate catastrophe, which is connected to social justice, connected to post-colonial dynamics, connected to refugee problems, connected to the life of developmentally arrested parts of of our planet, you know, all of these things are spurs. They're stimulus to 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 shift away from a kind of regional exploration of those forces and relationships, and and start to think on a different scale. So, I would say there are things that grew out of the Black Atlantic which are still alive. But for me, the challenge now is to think in a much more consistently planetary frame. How do you account then for like to quote values, but the clamor for nationalism? It seems that the, the national language wants to go back. It became a past that partly imagined now. It flies in the face of what's happening in the global south, where they're thinking more globally. So the global north seems to be retreating, you know? Well, I mean, they're putting up walls, that's true. But, I mean, the walls are going up everywhere. Walls are going up in Africa. Walls are going up in Asia. Walls are going up in the Americas. So, yeah, I mean, I think... Obviously, uh, Valor's marvellous book, The Clamour of Nationalism, is a really stimulating book to think with. I think nationalism as a force is, of course, in our environments most of the time, closely allied and entangled and counterpointed by racist language. And, you know, nobody can begin to understand what's happening in England. And I say England, not Britain. In England without really reckoning with the force of that of that entanglement between racism and nationalism. That's where, in some ways, my work kind of begins as a critique of all kinds of nationalism. Now, that lesson of how to think those things in relation to one another, to see their connections, has proved to be a difficult thing for academics to really accept. Because, and you know, let's leave the academics on one side, an even more difficult thing we could say for people on the left to accept. Even the best of the left in recent British history, you know, which professes a certain internationalism, let's face it, you know, still tends to think about social change in relation to the national state and still tends to think that the working class, quote unquote, has to somehow have its its kind of racist and nationalist instincts appeased. Now, I think there are so many problems with all of that that requires a longer conversation that we won't have now. Let's think with what you're saying. I don't, I don't know. I don't know that we can say the um, the North and the South divide around the appeal of nationalism. I think that wherever people are under pressure, wherever people are up against it, wherever people are struggling and suffering, they're going to encounter the. Uh, dream or fantasy let's say to be harsh a fantasy that, that if they could just if they could just purge their political community if they could just sort of pare it down till it was pure and there was no difference within it you know then they'd be able to cultivate the kind of relations and institutions and economic life that will guarantee them greater safety and certainty that idea is something that comes with the idea of the national state that fantasy comes with the idea of the national state. So wherever you've got a national state, wherever people aspire and build national states that will protect them from the turbulence of the global economy, from war, from uh, climate climate catastrophe, whatever it is, wherever the national state appears to be the solution, you'll encounter this ambiguous political discourse about who's in and who's out. And sometimes that will conform to a grammar of racial difference that we're familiar with, black, white, Christian, non-Christian, etc. And some of the time it won't, you know, some of the time it won't. 
I mean, recently, you know, we were thinking about the 20-year anniversary of the horrible genocide in in Rwanda. Mm-hmm. And there, you know, it's a very interesting example because you have a kind of set of colonial categories, which in some ways correspond to a kind of racial theory that no longer exists, being instrumental, being the energy for this genocidal uh, violence and cruelty. And at the end of the day, you know, people are being asked to produce their colonial identity card to see what group they belong to, because the body always doesn't, as it were, disclose the truths of its difference on, on, on demand. Do you know what I mean? And then other people get killed because they're too tall or too short for the category that they're supposed to be in. So so I think that appeal, that reaching for a nationalist solution to things has its own dismal life everywhere there are national states. Just thinking about some of the things that you're saying, Paul, and when you mentioned Black Lives Matter previously as well, and kind of linking that to the warnings and the writing and your writing in Against Race, And I would say that's probably your book, which has had the biggest effect on me, but also challenges me the most to think about how we erase race and think more from a humanist perspective. And in your more recent lecture, thinking about how we retrieve the human as well. But how do we grapple with those things? How do we grapple with nationalism or in black nationalism? How do we talk about the specificity whilst also not being nationalistic? What I mean is people's misreadings of the message of Black Lives Matter and associating that with nationalism. So whether that be the media's misreadings of Black Lives Matter or even black people themselves aren't, that aren't necessarily organising politically, like something that I know we spoke to Les Henry about more recently and me and Tiso talk about almost on a daily basis is how lost so many black people in our lives feel right now. And we see them retreating to narratives of conspiracy, mm-hmm. sometimes anti-Semitism. And it's kind of like how the hashtag or how this moment can is open to misuse because of how much crisis we're in right now. And that's what I was trying to talk to. Mm-hmm. I, I'm obviously all for the... Black Lives Matter movement, and I think it's, it's hugely inspiring mm. on a local level in particular. I mean, absolutely, this is inspiring and it's moving and it's amazing how young some of the people are and it's incredible how much energy they have and I'm really, really grateful to them for what they've done over these last few months, especially in the context of the pandemic. Where I think you and I might kind of agree in interesting ways is, is maybe about the dangers that, you know, fraternalistic thinking or militaristic conceptions of solidarity might be because you know there have been uh instances locally speaking where where the idea of being safe and being protected and being able to go out and act politically without being attacked you know the the answer to all of that is 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 some is thought by some people maybe working with a what i would think of as a slightly anachronistic version of african-american politics in mind you know that that if they militarize enough if they train hard enough if they're drilled sufficiently okay then they'll be able to go out and do that and what worries me about that is this sort of implicit i guess i'd call it military it's like a military way of thinking except that you know when you if you go and sign up and join the military you know what you're letting yourself in for in terms of authority. Well, you might do if you're lucky, I suppose. You might not necessarily know what you're letting yourself in for, but you don't have much excuse not to know because you know you're going to take orders, you know someone's going to be dishing them, you know that there's a hierarchy there and that the orders are transmitted from the top down and that you as an individual component in that organisation don't have much scope for making decisions of your own. That's, what, that's the deal when you join the army, right? Well... 
I, I think people can sometimes, there's a history in our in our movement, our freedom movement, of people taking those models over and thinking that they can just sort of instrumentalize them to manage the differences that keep appearing in our community, differences that really shouldn't be there. Differences between the people of different sexualities, of different tastes, of different appetites, um, different classes sometimes, regional factors, um, gender, and so on. Lots of different, lots of differences proliferate. And the answer becomes, oh, well, we can deal with that if we can just make ourselves somehow the same again. Um, and this is the argument I made in Between Camps, a book you call uh, um, um, Against Race. That was the American title and really like that that's what they wanted to call the book they said that um um between camps was a bad title because you couldn't between camps was nowhere being between things was nowhere that wasn't my that wasn't my sense of it at all i think americans use the word between a bit differently to how english english uses a word between i think uh, you know we when we we th- we can be between more than one thing whereas they can only be um, b- between more than two things they can only be between two things they can't imagine what it might be to be between three things it just doesn't work with the language we called it that um, more provocative title in, their, in that context because they felt between camps was nowhere it was between stools only so so i think that that kind of criticism of the more militaristic options in black political culture was something that I had really felt quite strongly about the time I'd written that book. I felt I'd written before that I'd written black Atlantic and I was being cuffed, man. I was being really beaten up by people, by black nationalist people. Uh, Well, not just them, but a lot of them came, you know, from the United States, I won't mention any names and go around giving talks in England and say, don't let this man teach your children. You know, he's a dangerous voice and all this kind of stuff, which is a bit shocking to me. And then at the same time, you know, there's the, um, uh, Million Man March was was brewing in the states, and you know I, I love bell hooks, a dear friend of mine, and we would talk to a lot, uh, talk a lot about about the kind of gender politics of a more militaristic, fraternalistic definition of what the movement should be. I remember when Leo X Chester was head honcho of of the um, Nation of Islam locally, and I, you know, I lived Finsbury Park. I used to see the young men out there in the I'm going to be going to work they'd be selling the final call you know and I would always always buy a final call to read it see what was inside it there's no point attacking people if you don't know what you're attacking I remember two things that are interesting about that I remember sitting down on the train opening the final call on my trip down to Goldsmiths where I was going and opening it and inside the final call there was an advertisement for behold a, a, a pale horse and these other sort of you know conspiracy theory uh, white supremacist kind of new forms of occult racist thinking, and, and this this is in the context of the na- nation of Islam. I'm thinking, what, what, whoa, how does that become possible? What? Is, and then I saw a young man actually reading the Turner Diaries, a young black man on the Victoria Line reading the Turner Diaries. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking to myself, whoa, brother, what are you getting out of that? What is it that that's offering you as a as a framework for interpreting your experience of thinking about the future that is denied you, thinking about the humanity and individuality you can't have that the Turner Diaries is giving you. Where did you, where did that come from? So there are important realignments that were going on then, and that and made me feel very against against the um, against this sort of militarization of the freedom movement in response to the effects of black feminist critique. Actually, a lot of the time. And then the um, you know the Nation of Islam here had their equivalent of the um, 
of the Milliman March. It was in Trafalgar Square. And I thought, well, I've got to go down and look at that. So I remember going down to Trafalgar Square and, you know, in front of the National Gallery where you look down, you know, they, they were coming into the square from the other side. I looked over, I saw Darkus was there, just looking down at the other end. He was looking down there and I was looking down from there. And we watched what was going on. And I thought, well, this is very interesting. You know, they, and finally, before the speeches began, someone put on a record. I thought, oh, that's interesting. I wonder what music they're going to play to convey this. Is it going to be, you know, I don't know, that era of hip-hop, brand Nubian or something like that. Public enemy. Yeah, well, public enemy. I always felt public enemy wasn't, I don't know. There's issues about that. There's issues about dressing up in uniform, marching around with simulated rifles and all that. There's, There's things to be said about that, which form part of this discussion. Anyway, I looked down, and what do they do? They put on a Bob Marley record, and I was thinking, what is going on here? Are you telling me, are you actually seriously telling me that the, the cultural content of this militarized moment of mobilization, we're all in uniform, we're all men, we're smart, we're thin, we've got bow ties on, we know how to tie the bow tie now. It's not just the one that you get with elastic. We have learned to tie our bow tie, right? So they're there doing this, enacting all of this, right? And the cultural moment, the cultural content, the note that's being sounded is supplied by Bob Marley, you know, 25 years beforehand. Well, that was the clincher. That was the final straw because I just thought, you're not generating anything. You're not producing anything. You've got this act. You've got this piece of theatre that you perform as a way of making yourself look powerful or enacting a script of power and masculinity. But when it comes to what the actual, as it were, emotional content of, of that, the sound that goes with it, the sound that makes it possible you're reaching for something from the past that doesn't exist anymore. So that for me was a very powerful, that was a very formative moment. And and I think my, my kind of hostility to them, well, not just the, the immediate manifestations of fraternalism and, and militarism, actually to the history, made me interested in the history of those things in and around the black movements of the 20th century. And, and it was important, I think, to bring that back. So I know we're all supposed to pretend that people who are not wearing masks congregate in in Trafalgar Square, that there aren't any black people in there, right? And it's really <laughs> just fascists and, you know, hippies and all the rest of it. But, I mean, I'm sorry. I know that there are black people in there, and we, we have to recognise that, and we have to have something to say about it, other than, oh, you're not really black because you're right wing, you know. Do you remember, Chantel, when the pandemic first started, my friend called me up, his suggestion was that, Black people need to form their own police. We need to be more militaristic. So there is a narrative out there that thinks is a viable solution. And even when I speak to young black guys about this current moment, a lot of them are espousing the idea of going back home, going back to Africa. They don't have a a deeper understanding of Marcus Garvey's work, but they have an idea that going back home will somehow make everything okay. And even though I explained to them that home is no longer home because that's not your home. They don't know that space. The sense that I get, they they feel that they don't belong. And this sense of not belonging has, in my lifetime, it seems worse now. Yeah, They feel so cut off. I had the same thing growing up in school where you feel that you've been lied to when you first learned about slavery or whatever it is. But these, these people right now, they feel they have no connection to this place. And so hence they kind of jump into conspiracy and such as like, Mm. I know you've spoken about this period it possibly being worse for some of the things that Tiso's talking about mm. because of the online yeah. culture and because of the importation of 
racism from other obviously it comes here it's put mm. online from here but predominantly is from the US I echo what Tiso says like I feel like we are around a lot of hope possibility and resistance but I feel like we're at a bit of a crisis within the diaspora particularly UK at the moment mm. about how we reconcile with difference but also how we reconcile with crisis the online culture has added to the idea that subcultures are like a buffet so people can pick and choose Mm. bits and pieces of what they want to align themselves with what they want to display or virtual signal people are not really connected to subcultures if they just pick them it was weird this one guy started speaking to me and the first thing he the first person he went to as an expert was david ike and i'm like wow i remember when alice walker was on desert island disc i mean Alice Walker, you know, black feminist, thoughtful person, important mm-hmm. writer, important activist, you know, and what does she do? They ask her what book she wants to take to the desert island with her. And she says, David Icke. Well, you know, so there's a lot of it around. There's a lot of it around. And, you know, we need to really understand what people are getting from those kinds of explanations. And it's, I'm very fascinated by the idea of, of going home, that you talk about going home. And the reason I say this partly is because, you know, one of the things that's happened sort of demographically in recent times is that the black communities here have changed a lot. I think Caribbean history and Caribbean influences and Caribbean culture aren't really the dominant note any longer. They were for the longest time. And that's my generation. I'm very, you know, honoured to have been part of that and contributed to it in some way. But I think now that's not the case anymore. And very often as we're dealing with a more, a much more complicated formation of a community, a plural community. It's essentially a kind of African phenomenon. And the people are arrived here at different times. They arrived here with different kinds of access to capital. They arrived here, you know, in a number of kind of complex ways that don't really fit with the, with the narrative, with the stories, with the kind of history that we've seen unfold under the... I mean, I know it's not a satisfactory term for it but let's just use it here for a moment windrush right that's a different history it's a different formation it's it points and you know nudges people towards a different mode of self-understanding there's no point turning to these um young people of Ghanaian or nigerian heritage of somali heritage and saying going on to them about slavery and suffocation because that's not their history they have a very different history And the new voice of black politics in the future is one that will have to engage with those differences. And, you know, those young people, a lot of them don't really identify with the idea of of blackness in that way, in a a sort of Caribbean, Black Atlantic specification of all of that. You know, they think of themselves as Ghanaians or they think of themselves as Nigerians or they think of their complicated generational lineage or genealogy that connects them to the places in Africa where their parents may have come from that that's a different story and what what I see happening and you, you know maybe you 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 won't agree with this is that often that kind of internet formation generates a kind of almost generic blackness that enables those people to discover commonality or invent a kind of commonality that accommodates the differences but actually they're not strongly invested in that script they're much more invested in the idea that they're nigerian or ghanaian or wherever they may have come from there's a there's and that's a living thing because when they when they go off the street then go home they might be speaking a different language they might be speaking to they might be speaking they might be engaging with a a complicated family life that involves life in several different locations simultaneously it's not like the 
the, the history of Caribbean migrants and their children and their grandchildren and their great-grandchildren. It's really quite different. So to love, lump it all together and say, oh, well, that, that's black, you know, is, is I'm sure, I think it's a luxury we can't afford, probably. Paul, I, I agree with you. I think in terms of young people and the culture production they produce, in particular form drill music, Yes. Now, drill music is a form of music originating in Chicago, yes. in America, but it's localised and we have Australian, New Zealand, we have white English guys doing drill. At its core, it sometimes it has a aesthetic of blackness. This has become localised and hybridised wherever it goes. Yeah. So when it's in Australia, I recognise it as drill, but I don't recognise it as drill. That's the kind of complicated picture I want to kind of put across to, that's how the world is now. Or when you speak to a kid, they listen to Korean pop music, mm. they have South African friends, yeah. and their their whole world, if from their bedroom, is international. They, they have very few friends that are from where they're from. Yeah. And they might feel more closely or more emotionally invested and things that are remote to them rather than the things that are happening mm-hmm. outside their door. So, you know, the, the murder of George Floyd or the name of George Floyd or the other African-Americans who've been murdered by their police and their um, authorities in, in different parts of the United States, that is sort of closer and more meaningful to them than, I don't know, David Oluwale or Aseta Sims or the other people who've died here in similar or comparable circumstances. So I, I recognise that. And and that way, I mean, you talked uh, a moment ago, Tissot, about people living international lives or, you know, being able to pick from the buffet of culture that comes to them through the screen. And the, what are the consequences of that in terms of identity? Where do those people then feel comfortable? Where do they feel most themselves in a world where they can borrow or annex or steal or appropriate anything from anywhere and fold into their own being i mean i think these are these are questions we need to we need to ask and we also need to reckon with the fact that the idea of a sort of sovereign subject sitting in a kind of digital space accessing all the the fruit of the world through the computer that that's not really a very adequate account of surveillance capitalism because surveillance capitalism doesn't enhance your you might feel your freedom to pick to mix to blend to borrow to steal that that, that you have maximum freedom in that but actually someone else has already overdetermined that process and someone else is already steering your computer monitoring your computer targeting you with messages that derive from your eye movements or whether you put a punctuation mark in or how you use language and all of that's being read all of that's being scripted around your shrinking sense of your own freedom and your agency in that space so we've got to begin to to convey to people that though they are and this is saying maybe ideologies always did this before makes you feel as though you're the author of your own desires and your own patterns and your own stories and your own truths actually in this instance with regard to the way computers used someone else has taken charge of all that process and they're giving you just a very very narrow channel to move down that they've decided is the one you should be in I always get the sense that people understand that. Some people, they, they understand that their lives, they almost feel like it's predetermined. And this is what's caused people to kind of lurch into a distrust of knowledge, yeah, a distrust of authority. So they understand that they feel being controlled at this narrative that they're receiving from, be it from a peer-reviewed text or, but as long as it's from a, a trusted source, it is to be distrusted. And this is one of the problems I find I encounter when I speak to my friends now. It doesn't matter what I say, 
they distrust it because there's the there's an inherent distrust of knowledge yeah i think that's true and i think there is in that distrust there is in that as it i call it a curated ignorance because someone else has curated it there's power operating in in the pattern of curated ignorance and and that that doubt that distrust that refusal has been engendered in those people it's not just them reacting to what they may perceive about your class transition or your changes as you manipulate language and maybe your code switching isn't as fast as it should be or something like that (laughs) your journey takes you in different places yeah I mean, let, let's leave that open to be generous. Right? But actually, I think there is a cur- there's a curation of their ignorance that is the that betrays the operations of power in a way that wasn't there before. And we can give that history. We know what the history of that was. We know how that process grew. We understand what the you know psychopolitics let's call it that the psychopolitical dynamics of that outcome are. And we can, we, you know, there are lots of people who've written very big, untrustworthy books that will tell you exactly how that happened. That, and it might, that actually helps me mm. empathize more with it, thinking about it like that. It's been curated over time rather than something that's just happened and mm. you've just selected that. Yeah, that's a really, that's such a better way of thinking about it. And yeah, helps you understand, but also think about how we can get those people back and how can we win them back (laughs) how can we win them back because something that's been curated can be well uh, the hopeful part of me thinks it can be uncurated (laughs) we've got to get them offline that's one thing we have to do yeah get them offline we have to get them out of the house out of the bedroom uh, off the (laughs) estate you know we need to get them into the fresh air we need to get them into the green get them out with a dog get them outside with each other you know we need to get them out and break the addiction that the technology has put in their bodies. You know, we have to break that addiction. I went to give a talk before, just before the lockdown, I think it was, uh, lock up, sorry, I like to call it lock up. Mm -hmm. Just before the lock up, I went out to give a talk at A-level sociology students, and they were there, and I was talking to them. And we were talking about some of these things that we've touched on um, today. And I said to this young man who came up to me to ask me some question or the other about black criminals in A-level sociology, uh, you've got your phone there in your hand um how how many what's your average number of hours you're spending on that phone every day because it gives you a report it tells you you've been on for an average of whatever this week and he said he rather shamefacedly pulled it out and showed me that it said he was on his phone for an average of eight hours a day okay that's a point of vulnerability that's a place we can go to cultivate a more we can denaturalize the relationship with information, with pleasure, with those little hits of dopamine that come from scrolling through and finding the things that you like and things that resonate, the, the sort of components of your individuation and the pleasures and joys of that. We can get into that space and make a bit of trouble and do some damage with that and try and de- denaturalize that relationship. When I think of the mobile phone, I think of it as an extension, like the idea of the car, the kind of gift that is individuality personified, right? You have this, all this information in your hand, right? Anything you could think of, you can find out anything you want. And it's those idea of the idea of desire, the idea of wanting it and all that. And to consume when you want is like, it is the kind of zenith of being in it of, of Western democracy, right? The idea that you can get all this in one go. And it's, 
that is so appealing. And like, I, I, I'm a sucker for it myself. I've got about 12 phones. Right? So, so, yeah. No, I collect them. I collect them. I collect, I've been collecting for like 10 years. But, um, right. Chantal, come on. Speak for me here. Go on. <laughs> Oh, it's a problem. Collects Nike trainers. Like it's. I'm a holder. I'm a holder. But um. But but just to add, just to add to your point about the A level students, Paul, and I feel like I see this with the young people around me. However, I would like to caveat that Mm -hmm. and say that I definitely see that amongst of older generations as well. Mm -hmm. It does concern me just as it the same way it does the younger generation as well. Like people who haven't necessarily who have spent a lot of their life for obviously lots of reasons, not necessarily engaging in knowledge or engaging in literature or books and whatever, finding this new way of accessing knowledge in an accessible way mm. and then for then it becoming an addiction and then find like what Tiso said, finding what they want to find on that. And mm. I know we're talking about quite, like things that people have written about for a long time now, but mm. it is it's worth yeah. No, that that is true. And I, I'm 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 not harshing on uh, Tiso for being a phone collector. <laughs> I mean, that's all fine. And there is there is somewhere in it a democratic possibility. But I, I guess I would say that the democratisation of knowledge is, is, has been left behind as an option, as the internet, as the forces and the infrastructure of surveillance capitalism has become more extensive. Mm-hmm. And the problem is, with regard to, to black politics and black freedom struggles, you know, a lot of what the information that you would like to know and that you might need to know isn't in that archive because there's a big filter that stops it getting in there and you know i can tell people about something that i witnessed with my own eyes and they will tell me it never happened because it isn't in wikipedia i think there's some big questions there about about what historical resources what archives are available what forms of knowledge are available and the idea that you could you could hand over the, the trust that we talked earlier on about lack of trust about knowledge and and so on the lack of the tr- you can hand over the trust that you need to you need to feel to the forces of surveillance capitalism when you appeal to that archive to give you the history that helps you to understand what's happening to you i mean i think that's a misplaced trust actually i think that trust is misplaced and you know a lot of the things if we think about the history of black lives matter you know, I would really like people in this country to have available to them a sense of how black lives have been made not to matter here through judicial killing, through contact with police and prison authorities. And I would like them to know those stories and know those archives and, and to have those faces familiar to them and have the voices of those families and those parents and so on in, in their heads when, when we think about, about what this movement should mean. You know, I'd, I'm sure that this year the... Um, demonstration of the families campaign that walks down to Downing Street every year uh, at this at this general in the autumn phase you know I don't know whether that will happen I'm sure it will happen in some form some sort of distanced and responsible form but I'm always struck when I go on those demonstrations you know to listen to you know it's not all about the story of Stephen Lawrence let's face it you know I know that the Lawrence family suffer greatly and I applaud their courage and tenacity in bringing uh, attention to their loss and presenting it as a symbol of things that need to be addressed in the structures and systems of uh, racialized life in this country we need more stories than that we need a much bigger repertoire of those stories and 
that history in order to really, I don't like the word empower, but I think I'm going to use it in this context, in order to empower ourselves sufficiently to be able to just to be safe in the next period that's in front of us. Is it then about how history is written then? Or is it how the national narrative of history, how it's how it's constructed? I don't know how it's happened, but Stephen Roberts has become like the, the, the temple and all other voices are kind of being silent in that kind of narrative. Without someone in the street, name another one, people would struggle. They wouldn't be able to, yeah. Is it the task of the historian then? Yeah, I mean, I know that whatever my generation's accomplished, if I can speak for my generation now, and probably a lot of people wouldn't want me to do that, but I will. Um, we failed in the sense that we haven't we haven't we haven't created those streams of knowledge we haven't made those archives we haven't put those those pamphlets online we haven't we haven't shared we haven't passed on the information and okay i mean it's hard to do all that mm-hmm. and you know one of the reasons i one of the reasons i i wanted the job of running the center that i'm now trying to get off the ground at UCL was precisely because it would give me some institutional backing and opportunity to try and bring that history to life in a way that people might find useful and vivid. And, and you know, obviously, until the pandemic, the lockup came, that's, that was the track we were on. Next year is a big year, of course, because it's 40 years since the riots of 1981, 40 years since Swamp 81, um, 40 years since Deptford uh, fire, um, and then, of course, it's 10 years since the killing of Mark Duggan and all of that. So there's going to be a, a big opportunity in 2021 to really reflect. So much of the institutional life uh, and uh, the positivity of that awful moment in the in the early 80s, you know, so much of that is, um, is, is really created during 1981 and, and around 1981. So I'm hoping that with a year in front of us, we'll be able to really reflect on that history, bring a lot of the... Uh, history to life through testimony through witnessing through the material culture the archive of all of that to put that in front of people to put that in front of young people and 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 offer them that resource as a way of focusing their own understanding of themselves and their trajectory better than we've done just to come back to your point about your generation paul i'd like to just sort of say that i'm definitely empathetic to your generation in that respect because i feel like just thinking about time and thinking about the 80s and 90s and noughties and now so much has happened that has inflicted our lives thinking about neoliberalism and thinking about the blair years like there has been so much hopelessness because there's been so much crisis and i feel like it's only sort of looking back over the past, like I'm I'm 28. So I, I talk about on this podcast being a sort of child of um, neoliberalism. I was a, I remember Blair coming into power because I remember our material conditions changing in the home. But equally, like that was a that, that that moment really solidified some of the things that we're seeing now. And it was so I do I feel like your generation, generation below you have been up against quite a lot. So I would like to, yeah, bring a bring a sort of empathetic lens onto why maybe some things haven't always been passed down because it, there has been so much happened. There's been so much assault on Black life. All that stuff has been so prevalent. I feel when I speak to the mandem and like we're talking, they feel there is a gap. They feel there is a intergenerational gap. So the information that you spoke about there. They feel they don't, they don't have that, so they're not equipped. So one of the things they say, well, 
no one told me to, no one told me this, no one told me that. So my retort is like, knowledge is a, it's a proactive thing, right? So you can't sit there and kind of shirk up responsibility. But there's an overwhelming sense of feeling that there was an intergenerational gap. And when you're saying like the stuff you're speaking about next year coming up, the idea of putting archives in front of young people, also it gives a chance for young people to reflect on and tell older people what's going on in their lives. Exactly. So one of the big things that we're seeing at the moment is the lack of understanding around knife crime and street crime adults are so are so fixated they don't really understand that world or where these kids are coming from man it's interesting when you speak to a young person about that those particular issues about their lives you would have to be a hard person to change your mind or change your approach because they live in a different world man Mm. it's a different world well that is true but then you know this goes back to where we started i mean i don't know if you know linton's poem five nights of bleeding it's the first poem linton ever published i think it's like 72 73 and what's it about it's about someone getting stabbed you know five nights of bleeding so i'm not i'm not convinced actually i'm not convinced that it's so different in a sense the the violence which is folded inward and here you know the reason i would think well i know i know the reason he was able to write that poem and express it in the way that he did was because he'd been reading Fanon and be thinking about Fanon's stuff about fratricide. Who do you turn on when, you, when you're under pressure? You don't yeah. turn on the enemy. You turn on the people in your house. You turn on your brother. You turn on your sister. You turn on your mum. Oh. See what I mean? That violence <clears throat> is, is imploded. And the violence from outside and the violence in the structure, the violence in the system comes into you and you vent it on those who are close to you. And so part of the poem is about is about that, really trying to reckon with the implications of that, because the poem says something about that violence is only the first phase of the violence that's coming. There's an, there are other forms of violence coming once people do sort out, you know, who, where their interests lie and who their allies are and so on. Now, I mean, maybe that seems a bit sentimental, a bit romantic now, but I think the essential problem is one that would be recognisable to young people today. Maybe the balance of fear is different, the balance between fear. I mean, what I'm really struck by is how frightened people are and how frightened people are to move off their patch, move out of their area, move off their estate, you know. I mean, there's a lot of issues about this moving around yeah. that are really relevant to this. And I, and I, so I, I'd want to try and test some of it. I'd want to try and test some of it against, in, in, a, in a dialogue really about that, because... You know, I grew, obviously I grew up in London and I knew that there were huge areas of the city that I could yeah. not go to. I couldn't go there. My my parents didn't have cars. Neither of them, we didn't have a car. So I'm, you know, I'm on public transport. I'm thinking, well, where can I go? There are issues about how we bring these histories back to people and say, well, maybe if we have a good space of time to talk it all through, there's a kind of mutual recognition that can happen. And there's a kind of mutual translation or two or three-way translation that will happen so that even the language which changes so fast now Mm. um, can become something that we can share and 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 see commonality see patterns to compare contemporary patterns with patterns from different historical moments and so on so i'm optimistic about that but we need to to be able to do that we need to build kind of educational institutions and spaces where that kind of conversation is possible Tea, I'm with Paul on that. Sorry. No, listen, I, listen, I, listen, I agree. Like, listen, you see how the man them, like, see? Like, so I'm just saying, like, so, boom, from East London. I, I wouldn't go South London. Like, that's not one, it's not one if we what you do. But when I speak to kids now, like, the level of fear, 
Not even just go just go to a different postcode. Yeah, yeah. To go, but, but that's not see, that's not new. No, 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 that's but not, not new. But no, what no, is what, no, but what is what what is different? What's different? And like I said, I've been imagine it's the level of violence people are willing to meet out on people for yeah. for transgender. That's something I've never seen before. This to me, from living on that life, that's shocking to me because that level of violence was used that would come at the end of something, not for just making minor transgressions. And this this is something that's quite shocking to me. It's, Taking this to the the black people outside of the city, which are my people. <laughs> so. Um, thinking about like I, I recently interviewed a guy from Bromsgrove he was, he was going to Derby in the East Midlands and he was chased by like a rejuvenated teddy boy gang in a white van and that was last year right. I feel like this stuff as you say Paul like it, it's sort of continued but I also agree with T that it's evolved yeah. I guess for the people that I, for the black people that I speak with, that are outside of mm. context where they see lots of versions of themselves, their way of grappling with this is slightly different because you don't have as many people with you that are experiencing similar things. Mm. So that's one of the things that I think can definitely talk to. It's another element of what we're talking about here that I think is part of the story as well, like this, these issues of space and racialized violence. Yeah, well, absolutely. But I mean. The very fact of being able to have a conversation in in which you kind of connect or you comment on the violence we do to ourselves and the violence that's done to us by others and the challenge of, of making a conversation that can accommodate both of those moments and give us a geography in which we can think that problem of violence. I mean, obviously, if it's old blokes, then we're into a slightly different story. But if it's young men doing the same thing, and and if, and if the same, as it were, spectacular forms of violence that Tissot just mentioned are part of that script, we have to think about what what this is doing and what its sources are, and and you know what world of of gender relations it speaks to, and 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 that means that means going into some places we don't really like to go into and visit very often because you know I mean I think about all the stick that Diane Abbott got when she started raising the question of the role of pornography in the lives of young of young black people. So there are a lot. There are lots of things that we can get into that are connected with these difficult questions that we have to we have to we have to be able to talk about without being accused of washing our dirty linen in public or doing the enemy's work for them or any of that. We have to, you know, Stuart Hall talked a lot about the end of the innocent notion of the black subject. Um, very sort of resonant phrase for me. So, so maybe we should renew his commitment to abandon the, the innocent, the overly innocent notions of the black subject and start to deal with these more difficult things, which is so much easier to avoid. One of the big things, black masculinity, mm. the vast majority choice, several talks about black role models. We need more black role models. They have to be men. And I'm like, well, that's not my actual experience, right? So my actual experience, everyone in my life has been a woman, right? So... This is a very big topic within the black community at the moment. Like the idea that somehow we need more black men doing more. I think that's a new conversation. No, no, it's not new. So I think this is one of the things that I eventually get into the point where it's out of my head. But that notion of um, respectability and representation, like this is something that was seen as a way to get out of suffering. And it isn't like mm-hmm. we just get like obviously you've written about you've written about this we just get people that become yeah agents of the state like it's not that's I think it's a lot more complicated yeah yeah well it is no it is and but I mean what the 
you, you know, whether the patterns that have got them through to this point and given us the most diverse cabinet in British political history, which is made up of, um, you know, to use the jargon of today, black and brown bodies that don't seem to conform to the, um, the specifications that uh, are easiest for us to think with, you know, um, well, you know, we again, we've got to really, we've got to see whether the the um, the forces, the institutions, the habits, the definitions of diversity and inclusion that have brought us to that point are things that are going to survive the storm that's that's unfolding now. And I, I actually, I mean, I know we've seen in response to Black Lives Matter enormous energy from the corporate culture that's trying to kind of purify itself. Um, whether it's professional sports or, you know, consumer uh, habits or this, that and the other, everyone's putting up the black square and saying, not us, we're not involved in any of that. We are outside of all of that. I find it hard to see that surviving for very long because I think people are wise to those gestures. And uh, let's, you know, I suppose from the other side, you'd have to say that the enthusiasm that the corporate culture has for these versions of diversity is enough to drive anyone into the arms of the alt-right because they're looking for the outside, right? They want to be outside that. Maybe that, yeah. that that's something else we don't really want to face up to. If that's the mainstream now, empty gestures about diversity, then you can see why people are being shoved or, or running. They're running, actually, to find the outside. And on the outside is David Icke with his arms open saying, come <laughs> to me. <laughs> Paul, thank you so much thank for you. joining us. That was brilliant and so much food for thought. And it's so exciting to see you at UCL. When we found out that you were heading up the centre, we were really excited. It's an exciting time for us and we're really looking forward to seeing what, what you do in 2021 in particular. So thank you so much for joining us. I know if I can if I can make that centre strong and meaningful, then it will strengthen all of us. And that's really what I want to do. Thank you so much for inviting me. Keep safe. Thank you for listening to Surviving Society with Chantal and Tiso. You can now continue the conversation with us on Twitter and Instagram. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please support us via Patreon. If not, you can always support us by sharing, subscribing, rating and reviewing. 